Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives. One minute of screen time per episode. I'm Richard Dunham from Ghibli Minute. And I'm Chigeko Dunham, also from Ghibli Minute. And this week we have a special guest with us. Melanie Greenberg, Richard's sister, and I have a YouTube channel called Pardesi Reviews, where I review Indian cinema. And today we are talking about Minute 74 of The Best Years of Our Lives, which starts with a fade to black, a change of scene, and it ends with the old druggist Mr. Bullard recognizing Fred. So yeah, there's uh, we. Basically, we immediately switch gears, moving away from Alan Millie, and we see Fred walk into the drugstore. Fred, played by Dana Andrews. Uh, we talked about Myrna Loy and Fred March. I don't, I can't remember what else I've seen Dana Andrews in. I can't, I can't remember either. He sort of has that kind of generic, <laughs> you know, classic Hollywood kind of yeah. face. Mm-hmm. He definitely has that look. Yeah, I kind of... I'm looking now at his Wikipedia page. I mean, he, I feel like I've seen him in... Like, was in he was he in uh, Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World? Or like some other kind of uh, monster movie where something was... Uh, became giant because it, uh, because it was irradiated? <laughs> because of atomic industry. Uh, atomic uh, bombs or something. I don't know. I'm not seeing it. Looks like he he did a lot of TV guest star appearances as detectives and and things like that. Yeah, looks like he did. Uh, he was in a bunch of noir. Laura. Oh, he was in the Satan Bug as General Williams. So maybe that's what you're uh, thinking maybe. of. <laughs> he was in a Twilight Zone uh, episode. Okay. Okay, that might be where he looks familiar. Yeah, yeah, he's got... Uh... Curse of the Demon from 1957. I don't know, he just has that, he has that face like he that he's sort of an everyman kind of a kind of a thing that he, you know, looks like he's had quite a few, but this is probably one of his biggest films, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, it's like, uh, hey, we need somebody with a jaw. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. No, yeah. yeah. Exactly. He has the jaw. He does have the jaw. Yeah, he could have been. He could have fit in the uh, the Batman suit in the nineties. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think Robert uh, or Roger Ebert said they're not. They're just casting the jaw. Uh, it looks like he did a lot of westerns, and he did quite a few kind of war kind of movies as well in the uh, in the forties. Yeah, he was in yeah. um, the Iron Curtain, which I don't know is anti communist. So he's a okay. lot of propaganda i guess <laughs> yeah. so he walks in uh and behind him so there's a lot going on in there's this. so much going this on is the in the background yeah i mean you mentioned that uh for this movie william wyler had the sets constructed as life-size instead of like some other movie i guess earlier movies you would see you wouldn't really see all the walls it was kind of like built as right, like kind of a, right. a sitcom set this you, yeah. you definitely feel how crowded 
things yeah. were this this drugstore oh my god yeah especially this scene this kind of tracking yeah. shot of him walking through and and jostling people and and just the cacophony of the signs i mean it's black and white so we don't we don't see the colors of what all of these signs with, you know, perfume here, talcum powder here, you know. Uh, it is kind of wild to see all the prices for everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I wish. It's, it's uh, they're not brands, though. Like, no. They're, they're advertising, no. like. The product. The product and not the brand. Mm-hmm. I don't know would that. Right. That's not really something you see today. And I don't know if this was like a movie convention or something that was actually the way they advertised back in 1946. They didn't know about product placement the way I they would do now, right? Yeah, I suppose, yeah. This would be a big movie to get you. Well, speaking of product placement, so we see a lot of stuff behind him as he walks in. I was able to track down on the web this pinball machine. Oh, wow, really? Yes, this is the oh my goodness. hi-hat pinball machine released in May 1941 by the Ginkgo Manufacturing Company of Chicago, Illinois. And I was even able to track down the press release <laughs> from Ginkgo. Oh. oh, my God. From, uh, oh my God which was published, <laughs> published in a magazine called The Bill, or publication, I don't know what it is, called The Billboard. In the May 3rd, 1941 issue, page 98, it has a dateline of April 26th. Ginkgo promises surprise game. The cat's been let out of the bag by Ginkgo Manufacturing Company that its new game, Hi-Hat, which is due for release soon, is packed with surprise features that'll, quote, awaken even the most jaded players' appetites, unquote, as they term it. I'm not saying exactly what we've got on Hi-Hat, but you can bet it's something terrific, remarked Meyer Ginsberg, Ginkgo official. I'm sure a hi-hat <laughs> won't be any exception in the long succession of Ginkgo hit games. And as a matter of fact, our reports from test locations is convincing evidence that hi-hat will be one of the biggest hits we've ever produced. Said a prominent Eastern operator, I already have a big pre-release order in for hi-hat. It's no wonder that I've got so much confidence in the Ginkgo line. They've been giving operators one smash hit after another, and I've definitely proved to myself that I make more money, have far less operating difficulties, and always get larger trade-in prices on Gentco games than on any other. More power to Gentco, and I'm betting that Hi-Hat will be another terrific number. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Pretty good. Okay, I love that you said cat is out of the bag because your cat walked into the room at that moment and all I can see is this tail. black tail walking around. <laughs> so there's some I uh, the uh there's like a internet pinboard database oh. it, where I found all this stuff. IPDB.org. And they've got some a nice color photos of this pinball machine. So it looks like the backboard. Yeah, you've, you're looking. Yeah, you're I looking found it. it. They've got. Uh, it looks like they've got like showgirls as the theme. Like. Oh yeah, this is very Vegas. Like Vegas. What you Vegas. would see in a Biter Becky <laughs> movie, like the the chorus line, but uh, like Broadway chorus girls in various outfits. It seems to be the theme of Hi Hat. But yeah, Genko. So I assume since it was they quoted Genberg. That that's where the name Ginsburg, Ginko yeah. came from. 
Ginsburg. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. So next to the pinball is a magazine rack. Yeah. I was only able to puzzle out a couple of the magazines. The one on the kind of closest to the camera on the top right is C Magazine, which seems to be, they always feature a pretty lady on the cover. If you look up, I mean, I couldn't find any information on what like general information on this magazine. There were other magazines like published in the 90s called C, but I was able to figure out this is the July 1946 issue of C Magazine. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I looked with... up C Magazine and there is one cover of this very nice lady. She's um, working on her bike or something like that. And the tagline next to her is how to spot a fascist. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's uh, as relevant today as it ever <laughs> but the July 1946 issue featured Elizabeth, the model uh, was Elizabeth McLean. And I tried to look up her. Oh my God, you really went down the rabbit hole. The only thing I found, like Elizabeth McLean, 1946. And I found an article about probably not the same Elizabeth McLean, because this was a, a 49 year old woman who murdered. Uh, 60-year-old Frederick Salisbury in June of 1946 in Winnipeg. That's probably not not the the Ms. McLean that we see on the cover of the yeah. Um, I'm looking at these C magazine covers, yeah. and another tagline is "Must we choose dictatorship or depression?" So yeah, it... so I don't. It seems to be like a straight the news articles. So on the cover of this issue, July 1946, the two articles on the cover are. The Price of Peace with Russia by Dr. Frank Kingdon and, appropriately enough for this movie, What the Veteran Wants by Millard Lample. Uh, I wasn't able to find anything on the first author, Dr. Kingdon, but Millard Lample was a folk singer who worked in a group with both Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. And he was later a screenwriter who was blacklisted in the 50s oh. for refusing to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee. So, mm. yeah, I don't know what this is. It's like straight kind of, you know, news commentary articles, but with a but with nice the, looking model. Yeah, so I guess it's kind of like a misdirection. I don't know. I mean, it's like, just to draw people in. <laughs> I don't know. I mean... Playboy had nice articles. They get the magazine for the articles, yeah. 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 It's like they used to say about Playboy. Yeah. Subscribe for the articles. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, we had mentioned this in a previous minute that this scene reminds me of the supermarket scene in The Hurt Locker, where Jeremy Renner is kind of overwhelmed with the abundance and compared to what he had lived with in the desert and in the base when he was overseas and you sort of you sort of get that kind of fred doesn't seem kind of as taken aback but he's he's having to walk through all of this bustle so many mostly women in in the store yeah and and just Visually, life is going on, hustle and bustle. He asked the the clerk, "Hey, didn't this used to be, you know, this drugstore I used to work?" Oh yeah, I got bought out. You know, just another reminder that life moved on at home while he was away, and things have changed. 
and it's all about commercialism right now. Just, you know, just everyone is shopping and has moved on in their lives. And it's also, I saw a trivia, I don't know if it's this particular scene, but two of William Wyler's daughters had little, you know, they were in the drugstore scenes as yeah. clerks or something. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I was trying, when I was watching the movie, I was trying to figure out which which of the, which two girls were his daughters. Yeah. Um, the woman he interacts with is giving me that traditionalist Hollywood acting style in her lines, at least. She feels... This was bought out by the midway. Yeah. <laughs> the midway chain. <laughs> Over there by the phone. And I'm like, <laughs> I wouldn't deliver that line like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I hate going all actor notes on someone <laughs> who is in this film. It's a great film. But... But... <laughs> this... This interaction feels very scripted to me. And ma so maybe this is one of his daughters. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I was wondering, there's, uh, I don't know if it's in our scene, in our minutes. It could be next week. Mm. When he leaves, there are like two girls sitting at the counter. We're like oh, yeah. looking at him and giggling. And I was yeah, that might be them too. Why was them? I think that's next the, week. Yeah. Yeah, I would say just good to go back just for one minute. The only other magazine I recognized on the uh, on that magazine rack was on the far left, what looks like the Atlantic Monthly. Mm. Used to have a cover like that, and I think uh, you can kind of read Atlantic in the that font. But that was very their very distinctive black cover mm, with just like yeah. a list of the articles. Mm -hmm. mm. And I did look on there the Atlantic. They have on the. They have just a smattering of articles from that time on their like online archive. Mm -hmm. But like, for, for example, from April 1946, the two articles they have are a in-depth portrait of India, like with interviews of with Nehru, mm -hmm. and oh, uh, wow. and an article on like the Nuremberg trials. Is are is this justice or is this just revenge dressed up? So even back then in 1946, Atlantic was a vehicle for hot takes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing, Mark, my husband, did not sit down and watch this whole three-hour movie with me. But something we were discussing is that since this movie came out in 1946, it's it's a pretty fast turnaround on the problems of veterans coming home. I mean, the war, this is only 1946. It's not something mm -hmm. that's, you know, four years later or something. Yeah. It's it's really current and of the moment. Yeah. Which is... Um, I mean, the studio system, they could crank them out a lot faster, yeah. too. You know? Yeah. But even so, I think the original article that Samuel Goldwyn, the producer, saw was from a 1944 Time magazine. Mm. Uh, article and and he about the difficulty of in of veterans integrating back into regular life and and then he commissioned the script to be written and then here it was made in 1946 so did you see that when i was reading on the 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 way the script was written so they commissioned the script and the guy that they commissioned the script for he went away like with a bottle of liquor and to a cabin like for a week or whatever. And he came back with a novel. He didn't come back with a script. He came back with a novel. He came back with a novel written in verse. What? <laughs> yes. so, in yes. verse? So they're like, 
what the hell? <laughs> so they had to they had to get somebody else to basically rewrite it oh, in an oh, actual really? script form. Oh god! But you can purchase the uh, the I verse about, version. Uh, the verse version, yeah, you can get it on Kindle. Nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So he's walking through just some other notes on the stuff in the background here. The I think next to the magazine rack is are those greeting cards? Yeah. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. it looks like to me. A greeting card rack. And then as he's talking to the lady behind the counter, behind him you can see a rack of pocket books. Oh. 25 cents each. Yeah, I thought that yeah. was fun. Also as he walks up to the girl at the desk, you spot you know, the there are African Americans on set, which really surprised me. I was like, "Oh dang, <laughs> they're background characters." But it looks like, yeah, a father shopping a with veteran, his children, unless he's wearing some kind of other uniform, like a like a, a gas station attendant, or <laughs> you know, whatever yeah. other uh, job he might have mm-hmm. uh, might uh, require a uniform, or he could be a soldier. Yeah, it looks like he's there with his wife too. I did not notice. Yeah, I noted that too. That was interesting yeah. that it was not just a lily white background of people. Right. I mean, it's the only um, black family in the set, but that's still very momentous, I would say. Yeah, now I'm looking at his uniform. It does look like a, a military uniform. Mm-hmm. Lots of creams, like like jars, Yeah. bottles. Perfume, powder. A lot of these things, like in the immediate foreground i can't figure out what like there's like this machine i don't know what that is yeah this is it's just kind of fascinating from a i don't know it's a different kind of a scene than what we normally see in classic movies we see the diners we see restaurants we see coffee shops we see those you know like that's kind of familiar to us but seeing uh, even if it's artificial because none of the brands are advertised it's just sort of interesting to see what a drugstore looks like with its it's not highlighted in this particular minute but the lunch counter yeah in the back Mm -hmm. uh the soda fountain lunch counter which was such a uh, fixture for what a drugstore was and the pharmacy and then it was it's weird and i don't i i have to wonder if it's just for this movie where you have the manager with his office uh, where he has a window oh. overlooking. It's almost like a yeah. factory work, you yeah. know, a factory manager looking over the factory floor. It's kind of a weird construct that he has this just this window office that looks over the whole thing. I mean, I guess they didn't have hidden cameras or whatever true, back yeah. then, so that that was his way of seeing if everybody was uh, was working by being able to look through his window. But you wonder if that was really kind of a typical or just done for movie effect to have him. Have that overview. Yeah, definitely. It definitely gives the next scene a lot more power to have that the, the background behind his own. And I didn't notice until I was taking notes for this minute that you can see him. Yeah, in the window. In the window from the floor as he's as Fred is walking in. Yeah, yeah. A lot of mostly women, as you said, and mostly in hats. Yeah, children. <laughs> a lot of women's hats. Yeah. And we've got, he walks by a a display of tasty hot nuts. So that's fun. Okay. <laughs> we've got our episode title there. Tasty hot nuts. 
tasting hot nuts. <laughs> and then uh, he gets, yeah, it looks like they are selling, uh, as he's walking, you know, up to the counter, the prescription counter and back, heat lamps, I think those are. You agree with me? Uh, where? They look like fans, but they don't have blades. Uh, what second? Is like a uh, second 50. 50, five, zero. Yeah, there's, those might be heat lamps. I agree. Because there, there are no blades. That looks like a bulb in the center, too. Like a light bulb. It's definitely like chalked. It's like crowded with merchandise. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to get it. It's just very overwhelming, I feel like, if I were to walk into a place like this. Right, I think that's I think that's kind of supposed to be the point mm-hmm. that it's kind of overwhelming to him. I mean, that's my take on it, is that he would... But yet he's confidently walking through, but that it is just this hustle and bustle. Yeah. I wonder how much this was different from what it was like when he left. Yeah, I wonder if maybe it was... I mean, you talked uh, in earlier minutes about kind of the uncertainty and that prosperity wasn't like a a done deal, but uh, it sure looks pretty prosperous in this store. Yeah. Yeah. And all those perfumes and creams become fodder for a later scene with Al's daughter Peggy who comes to visit him at the yes. store. Mm-hmm. So he walks up to the prescriptions counter. I love the This one kid. Which kid? There's a kid like as he walks by with a toy gun. Oh, he yeah, starts shooting, at, shooting him. at him. Yeah. That's yeah. so rude. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that was in this minute. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't I mean, we saw him have like a little bit of post traumatic stress disorder, but does he doesn't react to this. No. He just walks past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this also reminds me of It's a Wonderful Life in that here we have a main character who works for, a, for an old pharmacist, you know, and that how central that was like in the town, you know? Yeah, Mr. Gower. I love when he goes up to the counter, like the uh, <laughs> the sign above the counter, prescriptions accurately compounded. <laughs> yeah, I just love that <laughs> phrase. And uh, sick room supplies. It's got kind of a grim ring to it. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so he walks up to the counter. There's a little display behind the, on the back of the counter for St. Joseph aspirin. So I looked this up. I guess this is, I don't, it's not a brand that I've ever used, but I guess they were. Uh, Richard, I think actually you did use it as a child. Was that what I was poisoned with? Grape jelly to this day. Yeah. Yeah, you used to have baby aspirins. Yeah, Saint Joseph aspirin was still a brand when we were when we were little, um, but it's probably was bought out by one of the bigger companies over time. But it still existed in the seventies here. So it's still around. I mean, I looking. Uh, you can go you go to SaintJosephAspirin dot com, which is what I found, and they mention on their little timeline it was founded in eighteen eighty seven by Leopold Gersel in Bluff City, Tennessee. And then they mentioned 1946 as when the flavorful orange tablet expands to reach households nationwide. Yeah. I remember they had the orange baby aspirins. Yeah. Okay. I don't remember. Yeah. Maybe that was for our listeners in Chiaco. I had childhood arthritis and was given a lot of aspirin to treat it. Mm. And one of the ways I was given it was they. My mom would crush it up into a powder and put it in grape knee high, 
which is why I cannot have grape, grape soda. cart soda to this day. It's just not happening for me. And then they found out that uh, I went. To, I can't even remember a lot of what happened, but I had a lot of problems. I think I went to the hospital for dehydration or something, but they eventually determined that I was had aspirin poisoning because they were giving me so much of this gosh darn aspirin. <laughs> I didn't realize it was St. Joseph. Well, I mean, there was, I mean, I don't know if it was always St. Joseph, but I do remember that they had the, the orange, orange baby yeah. flavor. I can't imagine mom was putting orange. I remember grinding up just regular white tablets, yeah. um, but we didn't have the pain reliever options that we do now. And especially, you know, now they avoid giving aspirin because of rye syndrome when people, when kids might have viruses like chickenpox that, you know, you can get. But when we were kids, it was very common to give aspirin yeah. was the go-to pain reliever and uh, fever reducer. I looked up, I was trying to find more information than this St. Joseph Aspirin.com's about page. So, but it's, it was, I found it pretty interesting. It was basically aspirin was developed by Bayer. Mm. Okay. German company. So it was mm. developed in Germany by Bayer and in the late 1800s, so in the late 19th century. And there was a lot of issue basically through those two world wars about this German company. Basically, they were the main oh. source of that. So they were during World War One. They kind of got away with. It. There were a lot of American-based subsidiaries that continued to manufacture aspirin, like as Bayer. There was even like a big like scandal at some point involving one of the ingredients. It was called the Great Phenol Plot. Right around, mm. uh, right before World War One, mm. and it was only really after World War Two that kind of a lot of other companies besides Bayer started producing aspirin. So they mentioned 1946 on their about page, and it kind of fits in with this it popping up in this movie. And on the front counter, we see briefly we see Amphigel, which is uh, a, a little kind of a stand of of amphigel boxes which is an antacid like uh alka-seltzer i guess mm. Mm. yeah i think we see al making himself some sort of alka-seltzer kind of stuff when he wakes oh, up uh, sure. yeah. that that one you know from his hangover and i think that looks that's i guess that's mr bullard's pharmacist license maybe on the wall yeah unless it's like a business license they probably had fun making uh, that set. I mean, I'm assuming they didn't use a real store, but... Yeah, this is a giant set. Yeah. It's huge. It's a studio system, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it could have been um, something that was reused. Again, studio system, right. you had certain things that you could just dress up in different mm -hmm. ways. But I'm, sh you know, because it had a whole diner counter, yeah, soda fountain counter. That's true. And and I'm sure that's the kind of scenes that would be in so many different movies. So I wonder if they cleared out a bunch of this stuff for that later scene. I'm sure they did. Um, it'd be interesting to I haven't I'd have to go back and watch those scenes to see. But I think the point of this scene is like, wow, look how crowded it is. Look and how so everything stuff, has changed. You probably would just get in the way of the later scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also the the frivolity of okay, it's per perfumes and powders and whatever. Yeah. And here, he's just come from bombing Germany, and and now 
what does everybody care about? You know, mm-hmm. do you have two, two cents off your baby powder? All right. Anything else on this minute? No. No, we'll get this conversation with Mr. Bullard tomorrow. Just kind of a fun tracking shot, which is different than most of the other scenes in the in the film. Yeah, there's a lot of movement. They're just, yeah. they're just kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And a, and a lot a lot of extras, a lot of extras in this scene who are good about not looking at the camera. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, even the kids. Even the kids are good. They had the two the kids of the the African American kids and that kid with the mm-hmm. the pistol. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder how many takes this. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Right. I know that's exactly what I think whenever I see one of these tracking shots like this. Like how many times? I wonder how many times someone like accidentally knocked over a one of those displays. A yeah. display or something. Yeah. And Yeah. Especially since they had those kids running around. Oh gosh. All right. Well can you come back for the last day of the week tomorrow? I'm looking forward to it, to the momentous last scene in the drugstore. Mr. Bullard and Mr. Thorpe. Okay, listeners, you can find more of the Best Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google's platform, and at the main website for this podcast is at thebestminutes.com. If you want to engage with other listeners on social media, you can go to, on Facebook, there's a group uh, or page, Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook, and... This podcast is on Twitter at The Best Minutes. And uh, please find us here again tomorrow or next time on The Best Minutes Podcast. (laughs) Okay. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.